Okay, folks, welcome back. It's the Bill Bennett Show again, and we got a great show this week. Uh, we're going to talk to Mark Krikorian about immigration. We're going to talk about North Korea and China. We're going to talk about Republican dominance at the state and local level. I'll give you a few thoughts of my own, too, about uh, that Georgia special election and some tricks that the media is up to. But right now, our special guest, a good friend of mine and uh, our former radio show and all sorts of uh, insight is uh, is held by this man, and we, he's our go-to guy on immigration. And that's Mark Krikorian, the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Mark, good morning. Good morning. Mark, uh, a whole bunch of things I want to ask you about. And by the way, your essay, which um, is terrific, uh, and we'll put a link up to it, your Wall Street Journal piece, The Real Immigration Debate, really great. And there's one one paragraph in there I've been carrying around in my back pocket since it came out. I wonder if you'll be able to guess that which one, Mark, later on. But uh, let me. Yeah, let, I don't know. That's a good question. Uh, I, all of my, all of my writing is just sparkling in one. Hey, <laughs> it's all quotable, right? <laughs> right. The Kerkorian Book of Quotations. All right, that, that your day is coming. Uh, talk about uh, the border. Uh, Trump people are saying, look, border arrests are down, border crossings are down, simply by us getting serious, sounding serious, acting seriously, talking about the wall. Uh, is it true? Are the numbers, do the numbers bear that out? Yeah, it's definitely true. The question is, will it last? Um, anytime there's genuine talk and genuine belief that we're going to crack down and toughen enforcement, the numbers are going to go down at the border. People are, at the very least, going to, you know, wait and see. So this is a real thing. I mean, the numbers uh, have declined uh, quite significantly from what they were before. The number of Central Americans also, which had become the main source of crossers, not Mexicans, believe it or not, has, is down even more. So this is a real thing. But unless this follow-through you know, on all of the talks and plans that we've heard, the numbers will bounce back up. It's just that we need to persist. This is a, this is a clear indication people's behavior can, in fact, be changed uh, by yeah, expectations of law enforcement. But those expectations have to be fulfilled. I'm reasonably confident they will be, but if they're not, we'll see the kind of thing we saw after the 1986 law, which joined amnesty with tougher enforcement, where the crossings from the Mexican border did drop significantly. And then when it became clear the enforcement talk was just that, was just talk, wasn't followed up on, the numbers just went right back up. Yeah, so this okay. is a good sign, but it's just a first sign. Well, one question, one comment. What what are the numbers roughly? How, how much have they dropped? Very dramatically? They've dropped, well, yeah, they've dropped something like 70% now. Wow. Um, because from January to February, there was a drop of about 40-something uh, percent from one month to the next. And in fact, from January to February, usually the numbers go up because Christmas break and New Year's is all over. Some people go home, you know, back home to their village for that and then come back in. It should have gone up 10 or 15 percent. It went down 40-something percent. So wow. that's an enormous drop. And then it went down even more in March. And it should, again, it should have gone up. Instead of going up, it went down. So it's a huge, huge change. And, and do you, on the politics this, do you give Trump... Policy and rhetoric, some credit for this, some substantial, a lot, most. 
Yeah, I would say a lot and maybe even most um, okay. because there's been an enormous amount of talk about, you know, Trump the, the monster and Trump's going to enforce the law and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think this is largely due to Trump, and it will be up to him whether that lasts or not if they follow through. If they don't follow through with real enforcement measures both inside the country and at the border, then the numbers will just go back up and we'll be back where we started. You said real enforcement measures at the border. Uh, you didn't mention the wall. Do, do we need the wall? If he does other things uh, like real enforcement measures, can you keep these numbers down uh, without a wall? Yeah, I mean, I think we do need uh, better border uh, fencing or wall, whatever you want to call it, in some places. I think he's hyped it too much, and I think for a lot of people it's become a kind of substitute for all sorts of things we need to have, like, uh, you know, worksite enforcement to make it less appealing to come in the first place, and other things that the Attorney General just talked about recently, where they're now going to start or go back to prosecuting people who cross the border illegally, which is a federal crime. Um, so I think you need both. Better border structures, and I say that not because I'm trying to dodge the word, but the lot of the fencing we have on the border now, it's like a bollard, you know, a round metal bollard filled with concrete and separated by three or four inches from the one next to it. Is that a wall or a fence? I don't know. It looks like a wall to me okay. already. So I'd say we, we have to have more wall on the border, but it's not a substitute for all the other things. All right. I mean, I, we're using wall here in many in many ways. Uh, there's a rhetorical wall, which you know you give some credit to already. Again, you, yeah, as you said, you have to follow up. But uh, in some ways, he's kind of followed through already. He's not kind of. He has followed through. Yeah. In talk, talking about this, uh, he's done it. And I love I love what you said. I, I I often say, using the philosopher's term, you prove the possible by the actual. You know, and people say, hey, it's not possible to stop the flow of immigrants. Yes, it is. Just did, just just slowed it dramatically. Exactly, and you know, uh, the fact is, even the uh, half measures that we were, you know, pursuing under Obama, even those had some effect of limiting immigration. Because if we weren't even at, under Obama, if we weren't at least pretending to try to control immigration, there's a whole lot more people out there who would have who would have wanted to come. There's five billion people in the world poorer than the average Mexican. So the, okay. this was another piece in the Wall Street Journal that a writer of ours had um, this week, David Seminara, and his point was, look, if we don't have controls on immigration, there are hundreds of millions of people who would love to move sure. here. And, sure. you know, this is, for your listeners, that probably sounds like an obvious point. Why am I even saying that? Well, here in Washington, that's actually a mainstream view that there should be no limits on immigration other than, you know, controls on terrorists and that kind of thing. I mean, it's kooky, but it's much more important here in where the policy is made than normal people would imagine. You had a number in your essay, 700, was that uh, 700 million? Yeah, that was, I mean, it was guesstimate based on... Um, Gallup polling, because Gallup does various polls around the world, and they kind of impute from the results and that sort of thing. So it's all kind of iffy, even on Gallup's part. But there are something like 700 million people who, would, who said they would want to move right away. 
if they could. United States is the top destination. And if we were the ones who didn't have immigration controls and everybody else kept them, you could see, you know, hundreds of millions of people moving here. I mean, why wouldn't you want to be living on the street in the United States rather than almost any situation at all in, say, Chad or Niger or Yemen sure. or Haiti, you know? Of course, of course. We're speaking with Mark Krikorian. He's the executive director of the Center for Immigration Studies. Let me ask this wall question again uh, um, in a different way. If you keep the rhetoric going and you follow with enforcement measures, and a question in there, are enforcement measures getting tougher or is this just a continuation of Obama? Could you keep these numbers down to a reasonable level without um, the major wall? Yeah, you need some wall, some fencing, some things that you were talking about, but you wouldn't need this $25 billion uh, huge wall. Is that possible? Yeah, I think it's possible. Um, okay. But, but you know, it's, it's kind of a false choice because... It's not an okay. either or; it's a both and. You know I got you. I mean? All right, fine. Yeah, let's. Yeah, let's not spend any more time. He's going to do it. I'm in favor of his doing it, and good. But I mean, good news so far. Let's be grateful for the good news. All right, I want to get right to because uh, I know you're asked the kinds of questions we just asked you endlessly. I want to go to a different topic because this is the thing I was carrying around. This is your essay. Now you wrote it what a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was a couple weeks ago. Uh, all right, here's the quiz. I'm carrying around in my back pocket. I'm the former Secretary of Education. What's the paragraph? Um, probably toward the end on assimilation, I think. Yes, uh, I yes, <laughs> yes. Let me read Mark Krikorian to Mark Krikorian. This is your summarizing this study. At the beginning of high school, a majority of immigrant kids uh, identified as American in some form, either simply or some hyphenated form, say Filipino-American or Cuban-American. After several years of American high school, after several years of American high school, the primary institution tasked with imparting civic consciousness to young people, barely one-third still identified as American, with most adopting either a foreign national identity or a pan-racial identity. Our educational system continues to do an abysmal job at civic education, not least because of the influence of multiculturalism as a pedagogical principle. My gosh, I just knocked me out of the chair. The institutions which are supposed to produce e pluribus unum, huh, uh, the result of Americans, are taking kids in the opposite direction. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what else could we expect from the National Education Association and really just the broader ethos in our, uh, among our elites that, that disparages the idea of the unum, uh, you know, in, uh, and, and values the plurace. And now, you know, you want to do whatever you want to do ethnically, religiously, on your own time, that's great. I don't care. But the... A, a healthy republic needs a strong sense of common peoplehood. I mean, I'm just preaching to the choir here, but my point is that immigrants are the ones who need that, and kids from immigrant families, even if they're born here, they need that more than anyone else because they don't have a great-grandfather who fought in World War I or something like that. They don't have That's an right. American story. Right. My mom... It was a daughter of immigrants, went to public school outside Boston in the 30s and 40s. And she, what did she learn at public school? She memorized the Gettysburg Address saying, Hail Columbia, and learned George Washington was the father of our country. You bet. Anybody think they're teaching that in the L.A. Unified School District or yeah. Miami yeah. or New York? And it's not 
the immigrants' fault. Their kids, or their parents rather, the immigrant parents are not coming to the school with their kids and say, hey, teach my kid multiculturalism. I don't want him to be an American. Often it's quite the opposite. But they're not the ones who are driving the bus in this case. It's our own elites that don't like our society, and they're imparting that into immigrant kids. Yeah. I remember when I was Secretary of Education Initiative in the state of California to have, uh, you know, bilingual education uh, mandatory in the schools. It was defeated by a vote uh, of the people, including Hispanics, uh, Hispanic Americans, I should say. Now it's back. Uh, But but the educators didn't agree, you know. Right. Uh, but here's the amazing thing to me is is the first part of this. When the kids start school, they identify as Americans. I mean, that's that's the encouraging thing. This is like the stat mark that I use all the time. Our third graders do pretty well in international competition. When we get to the 11th grade, you know, we're near the bottom. The longer you stay in school, the dumber you get relative to kids in other countries. Now it looks like the longer you stay in school, the less American you identify as. Uh, at least as you're going through high school. That is a scandal. Yeah, no, I know. We should just give high school diplomas to eighth graders and get it over with. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, it's <laughs> it's not doing them any good. I, I'll tell you, you say you're preaching to the choir. You're absolutely preaching to the choir, and I'm going to preach to a larger choir. I'm on my way to Los Angeles. I'm on a panel with uh, with Betsy DeVos and Jeb Bush, and they said, give us one topic about American education that people don't know is happening, and I'm going to use this one. Okay, uh, this good. is this this is a gem. This is just really a I gem. I can give you the sites if you want on you know where that who did that study and that absolutely off there. Absolutely, I need I need everything. I need all the backup. But I mean, isn't the aren't the two connected? I mean, if we did a better job, if we did the job we're supposed to do, which is to help make these kids understand their country, um, and and think of themselves as citizens of this country, uh, wouldn't the American people be more open? Uh, to immigrants who came here and really wanted to become Americans. I mean, when you meet an immigrant who says, I really want to become American, I remember I did a swearing-in ceremony on the 4th of July in North Carolina. It was one of the most moving things ever, and people said, I'm just so proud to be an American. What American is not moved by that, if you believe it's genuinely stated? Yeah, I agree. But the fact is, that's not something we can fix overnight. Multiculturalism is a deeply rooted dysfunction not just at some elite level. We can't just pass a law and make it go away. It's in every corporate human resources department, every daycare center, every church, every school. This is the kind of thing that's going to require a broader cultural shift. And in the meantime, how about we take fewer people who need to be Americanized because we're just not doing that good a job of Americanizing. Yeah, well, how about flipping it around and saying, you know, you want more immigrants into the country? Okay, me too. How about we make as a condition, first of all, that we keep the border, that we make the borders safe and secure. Second, that when people come, particularly the young people, we make sure they're educated about what it means to be an American. I mean, I, look, I'm all for that. Um, how yeah. do we, you know, how are we going to do that? I mean, this is one of those things where uh, it's kind of like, um, uh, are we going to cut spending or raise taxes? You know yeah, what I mean. Right, to deal right, with the I deficit. Do. Every do. time we, every you know, we got to cut spending first, if you will, because otherwise we never will. And it's a similar thing. We've got to fix multiculturalism first, then we can talk about what do we do about immigration. 
This is great. Mark, this is terrific. Uh, this is just a bite, just a sample of the uh, wisdom of Mark Corey, and we'll put a link up to this piece, and we'll revisit with Mark uh, again sometime soon as this debate and discussion continues. But I, I wanted to highlight this because this is a dimension that people don't hear about very often. Mark Corey, thank you so, so much. Thank you. All right, well, that was a fascinating discussion with uh, Mark Corey. It's always interesting to talk to Mark. I just want to follow up and repeat a little bit and emphasize something. I am going to Los Angeles to the Milken Global Conference. It's mostly a meeting of big, you know, high-tech, high-powered business people and venture capitalists and all that stuff. But there's um, there are several panels, one on the first 100 days of Trump. I'll be participating in another one on the future of higher education technology. I have some thoughts on that. And then um, a third one, which is on education today, it's an interview with Betsy DeVos and then comments by former Governor Bush, Jeb Bush, and uh, the the governor of Montana and myself. Um, And we've been asked as panelists to come up with something to talk about in education that the public, the audience may not be aware of. And I'm going to talk about this topic. The fact that a majority of kids, immigrant kids, who come into American high schools, when they go in, they identify as Americans. Maybe hyphenated Americans, but Americans all the same. When they come out, um, they don't. They identify as uh, the nationality, the origin of their family, uh, Mexican, uh, Guatemalan, uh, whatever. This is a scandal um, and ridiculous, and you wonder why people are upset with this school system. This is one uh, one reason. E pluribus unum, out of many, one. Uh, how can we, uh, you know, uh, you remain alien to yourself in which your culture is denied. You're going to live in American culture. Uh, American culture, America, is, is the water. You're the fish. Um, you got to learn, you know, what the water is. How do you, How can you know your country? How can you love it or respect it if no one tells you what it is and what it stands for and what its story is that's why i wrote the books you know uh, america the last best hope uh it's just shocking to me chris beach is with me chris were you knocked over in the same way that i was by all this yeah you know it's a remarkable finding and it really just floors me in in the larger context of things you know we talked a lot in the presidential election this most recent one about identity politics and now, now you see the roots of it beginning in the education system. Um, you know, yep. Neil, Neil Ferguson talks about in his book, Civilization, you know, how each civilization has a canon of literature that it's a core founding documents. And he That's talks right. about, you know, Confucius for the Chinese, the Quran uh, for the Middle East, and so on. And for a long time, the United States obviously had its founding documents, its charter, the Constitution. And you've talked about this at length, but if you ask, you know, civic literacy is abysmal in this country. You know, you've talked about our high schoolers, U.S. history is for high school seniors, their worst subject. Good point. Um, And this, I think, just bears bears that out. Yeah, those core... those core books, uh, the, the, if you will, the core of the civilization, contained in words, um, words on parchment. Um, and I remember the survey I did of parents when I was uh, chairman of the National Endowment, asking what books should be written. Very close to the top, after the Bible and Shakespeare, were uh, fundamental American documents. Uh, the Declaration of Independence, uh, uh, the, the Gettysburg Address, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. 
uh, these are things that every American needs to learn. The fact that they don't learn them, that kids don't learn them, that they end up going backwards on this is yet one more stain on our schools. You went to public high school, is that right, Chris? No, I was homeschooled. You were homeschooled, but all the way through high school? Yes. Okay, and what did you study for American history? Uh, now you're quizzing me here. What did I... Trying, I read Paul Johnson's textbook, but I think that okay. was freshman year college. Okay. Um, okay. But we definitely did. You know, I took some um, constitutional law classes. I took some American history classes. One, but I mean, one one. But in high school, I mean, at homeschool, you did read about America, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we yeah. we studied and read the Federalist Papers. Okay. Uh, and it go. was. I mean, this was obviously one of the reasons that my parents decided to homeschool. Yeah. Uh, is because. In high school, there was a lot of emphasis on things other than civic education. Um, And, you know, obviously you can't bring your faith into the classroom, so you can't talk about it in that sense either. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, And I think there's a statistic. I think that not not a single one of the Ivy League colleges or the top 25 require a course in U.S. history uh, to graduate. Uh, I think a lot of them don't even require a course in U.S. history to graduate as a history major. I believe that's the case. I believe so, you're right. And I was going to ask you, where do yeah. these signals come from? Does it is it from higher education? Yeah, it's it? from the universities. It's from the universities. It's not a direct uh, trickle down. It's there in the universities. People go to the universities and they go into the classroom. But at also the universities, uh, they go out into the media. Uh, and the media seeks this out, too, and celebrates this multiculturalism. But you're right. Uh, Peace wrote, uh, we wrote years ago, uh, it, was, it was about the 2012 election, was it not? Uh, identity politics. Uh, and that was the main thing that Democrats were talking about. You know, are you black? Are you a woman? Are you this? Are you that? And um, that, th- 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 not American, but uh, cutting up uh, individual identity in a different way, uh, is a challenge to what uh, the traditional understanding is. So if you wonder why people feel alienated from their institutions, uh, this is one of the reasons. Uh, any further comment? No, I was just going to say, you know, in terms of higher education, uh, Heather MacDonald wrote a piece highlighting how uh, yeah. English majors at Harvard now are required to take yeah. a course in authors that were marginalized for historic reasons. Yeah. And so you continue to see... Uh, this identity politics and it seeps in through the institution in higher education and then you see these graduates go and then end up in the classroom um i just yeah it's a it's a discouraging pattern it's discouraging and disgraceful and um this is why people are going on their own this is why people are homeschooling their kids this is why people are going to the uh what's the name of that company the learning company Right. Uh, where people, you know, can hear, you know, audios of uh, of the great books and so on. But what a shame. You know, we dedicate billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to this educational enterprise. And this is another, you know, piece of, of uh, evidence that uh, we're not performing. All right. Um, let me move on to a couple of other things. Uh, we're just coming off the results in Georgia. Democrats and the media were hoping for a major upset. To, they wanted their a guy, John Ossoff. Um, to get a majority so he'd be the representative in the seat held by uh, now uh, HHS Secretary Tom Price, formerly held by Newt Gingrich. They didn't get it. It'll go to runoff in June. Uh, Republicans split the rest of the vote, so you'll probably see a coalescence of the Republicans behind Karen Handel, whom we know, 
and like, and um, the Republicans will probably keep uh, keep that seat. So uh, it could be 0 for 2 for Democrats in this uh, huge resurgence. I don't know. I mean, explain to me. He's a young guy. You're a young guy, Chris. What the appeal of this guy was. Uh, he didn't live in the district. He lives with his girlfriend who's a medical student. He lives in another district. And um, he's such a, a millennial, su- Such a millennial move, right? He's, he seems like classic millennial. Is this, is this <laughs> the future of the Democrat Party? Kind of a very liberal, you know, uh, uh, young guy. Well, or a very liberal old guy in Bernie Sanders, you know, one or the other. Oh, okay. okay. Um, right. I, you know, honestly, well, there's, I a th- t- there's a ticket for you. <laughs> right. okay. Separated by about 40-something years. Yeah, sure. Um, honestly, I'm not sure exactly what the appeal was. He's young. He's good-looking, charming. Um, he's obviously very left. And I think that the fact, just the timing around the ra- race and the elements and the politics, he had so much outside money coming into him. Uh, that he sort of just became the candidate uh, of the day. And they tried to sink as much as they could into this to win this race because they really, at the bottom line, it was less about him and I think more about the fact that Democrats really need a win. And if they had won here, then it would have been a sign that they they could have trumpeted that, you know, no pun intended, uh, that, you know, we put a stop to the Trump agenda, people are revolting. But yeah, they, they can't, can't do that right now. They, they can't do that. We, we shall see, and more races are coming up. Uh, one last thing I want to comment on um, at this uh, point, which is the the uh, the media um, story broke uh, just uh, you know yesterday, day before yesterday, or what was it, Tuesday, that uh, Tuesday the the 18th about this uh, murder in in Fresno, California. Um, uh, this guy, this homeless guy, just killed three people. And as he did it, he said, Allahu Akbar, Allah be praised. The AP reported it, and when they did, they uh, reported it as him saying, God is great in Arabic. God, they said, God is great. He said, God is great in Arabic. That's the quote from the AP. He didn't say God is great. He said, Allahu Akbar. Uh, why not use those words? Is this fear to offend? Is this a multiculturalism again? Yes, I think it is. This is very dangerous. This is very bad. People need to know who it is we're, you know, we're, who who we're fighting, who we're up against, who is at war with us, uh, and it is uh, these radical Islamists. The global war against Islamic terrorism is what we're engaged in. By the way, in thinking about that, uh, I was very pleased to see the mother of all bombs dropped in Afghanistan on uh, ISIS. Uh, and uh, th- that's good. I want—I just want the administration to be mindful of the fact that whatever you think of the attack in Syria, you know, on that airfield, that uh, the enemy that's seeking to destroy us and to kill us, both over there and over here, as the Fresno murders remind us, uh, is ISIS. Uh, and uh, let's remember who they are and what they're about. Uh, and when you uh, say, change Allahu Akbar to God is great, you're... Uh, changing the message you're changing the news and you're changing um the substance which is uh the truth and uh that begins to be a form of real fake news to say the guy yelled god is great uh is fake news that's not what he yelled he yelled allahu akbar and those were those are words now which i do think send uh shivers up and down people's spines as they as they should and if you're ever out in a crowd and you hear that you would duck wouldn't you duck? Wouldn't you look around? Wouldn't you turn your head, Chris, if you heard someone screaming, Allahu Akbar? I think you would. Absolutely. And, and to be honest, you know, when I hear those words, 
that's what they're associated with because there's a pattern of terrorist attacks and when they're committed that is the phrase that's yelled and so by change, trying to change that they're trying to you know rid rid the actual environment yeah. of what's happening here all right folks those are uh, my thoughts uh let's continue with the show let's uh turn to foreign policy there's a ton going on in the world and here to explain it for us is brian kennedy president of the american strategy group each week, the American Strategy Group brings us important conversations on the state of American security and national defense. Go to amstrategy.org to learn more or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Brian, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Bill. Tell us about, uh, you and I were talking just a little few minutes ago about uh, this administration and Iran and what this means. And then I want to talk to you about North Korea and China. Yeah, this morning, uh, or la I guess last night it was, the uh, State Department set sent a letter to the House Foreign Affairs uh, Committee uh, saying that Iran is complying with the nuclear deal. And there was a lot of outrage uh, by a lot of folks who thought this was a major shift on the part of the Trump administration. Uh, but in fact, I think this is simply the State Department not having enough people yet to uh, actually go through and fully review the Iran deal and uh, I see. Say, that say that they're out of compliance. So for all, for all those listeners out there who are worried that Donald Trump is somehow shifting on the Iran deal, which he said was the worst deal of all time, uh, he's, I think, still being diligent and they're reviewing everything that's going on and reviewing the terms of the deal. And I think over time we'll find that Iran is, is uh, in fact, violating the deal. On the other hand, it's such a bad deal, and they're still, you know, in the process of building nuclear weapons that uh, Iran may, in fact, be complying with the very bad deal that the Obama administration uh, struck with them. Yeah, no, it's, uh, so this was unnerving to uh, you, to me, to others, because... Uh, the president uh, had said during the campaign, the worst deal, and then you get this message from the State Department. This is the problem of not having uh, not having your people in place, right? This is one of the problems. Right, absolutely. There are still Obama administration officials who are in the State Department, and of course, it was such a bad deal. The most severe parts of it, when it came to the inspections, Iran was allowed to inspect their nuclear sites themselves. Yeah, so it's that. a crazy yeah. bad deal, and and there, Trump is still in the process of reviewing the whole thing. But you know, the mere fact that Trump doesn't have all of his people in place gives people a certain confusion that he actually may agree with some of this stuff. But this is just the government working out all of its its uh, normal bureaucratic you know operations. Well, as you know, we have a very uh, close. Uh former colleague actually he was one of your fellows when you were back at claremont working in the state department and to say all the people aren't in is an understatement that's one of the most poorly staffed departments uh right now of any of them right right i think americans are still not uh they don't appreciate how hard it is to actually fill some of these positions with people who believe in what the president does you bet. Let's go to North Korea. Hopefully, we'll get he'll get back to Iran and deal with this in the in the way we'd like. But let's talk about uh, North Korea. Um, what do you think is the Trump strategy here when it comes to North Korea? Do you see a strategy? Uh, I, I I do, and 
the only reason I, I was interested in talking about Iran to begin with is almost every North Korean nuclear test or missile test, while they're doing it, an Iranian official is there. And so you have this very strange axis between China and North Korea and Russia and Iran to give North Korea and Iran nuclear weapons. And the Trump strategy is to slow that down, if not stop it completely, and also send a signal to both Russia and China that they ought not to think they can go and use North Korea and Iran as surrogates against the United States, at least the way they have been for the past 30 years. And so I think Trump, for instance, when President Xi was in Mar-a-Lago and the president launched those Tomahawk cruise missiles, he was sending a signal to President Xi that it's not just about Syrian children, it's about American children. And please do not think you're going to allow North Korea or encourage North Korea or enable them to be able to kill Americans. And so between the president's commitment to building a missile defense, his projection of U.S. power with our Navy to that part of the world, I think the Trump strategy is uh, not merely to to um, talk tough, and I think he's been very measured about those things, but to actually rebuild the military in such a way that it would be discouraging to China or Russia to help their surrogates develop these awful weapons. All right, yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the China strategy? I mean, I, I take it uh, you believe that Trump can, uh, the president, can be uh, tough on uh, North Korea without alienating China. Can he, oh, let me just insert another question. Can he also be tough on China uh, and expect them to help with North Korea? Well, it, as everyone knows, North Korea is almost a totally wholly owned subsidiary of China. I mean, North Korea gets 90% of their energy and food from China. So the idea that China does not have near complete influence on North Korea is ridiculous. It's a bit of a, it, it really is just a bit of a dance. China, you know, wrings their hands and says, you know, we'll do our best in dealing with uh, North Korea. But, you know, let's, let's, you know, make sure that we're also getting good trade deals in the process. Yeah. And so the Chinese use North Korea as a pawn to get other things, other, to extract other concessions from the United States. And I think the president, I know the president, is too smart to let that happen. And so he's going to distinguish in his own mind between the problem of North Korea, which China can deal with, and also with trade and currency manipulation and defaulted sovereign debt obligations that the Chinese have, right, as well as, right. you, know, you know, the South China Sea. I mean, just because, the, you know, the Chinese wish to help with North Korea doesn't mean that we also don't have to concern ourselves with the South China Sea and the military buildup sure. of their installations there. They just, this is a delicate game that gets played. And so far, the president looks to me like he's playing it better than his predecessors. Good. We're talking, of course, to Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. Uh, just uh, pinpointing, focusing, Brian, for a second on the China influence on North Korea. This is, in all conversations, talk about the great Chinese influence on North Korea. 
me put it this way. Will North Korea do what China tells them to do? Almost certainly. Yeah, okay. Okay. I mean, because, they have... and, part, and partly because they can't afford not to. With that, with that much energy and foodstuffs going to their people, if the Chinese really wished to crack down, they would. And, and it would not be beyond the Chinese to replace the North Korean dictator if they thought it useful. I see. Okay. Well, that's China will behave. China will behave in their interest, and so close to them there in North Korea. You know, so far North Korea has been a very useful pawn. If North Korea turns out not to be so useful, for whatever reason, I would expect the Chinese to make that that move. What are the? Uh, and I'll go back to my earlier question from the Chinese perspective. When the Chinese look at the U.S. and they look at North Korea. What's in it for the Chinese to be a Mar-a-Lago uh, cooperative, uh, sell out or not sell out, just, you know, uh, squash, quash what's going on in North Korea for the sake of better relations with the, with the U.S.? You already mentioned if our defenses are up, they want to keep good relations with us. What else uh, uh, appeals to them about a better relationship with the U.S., which might uh, bring them to uh, do what we'd like them to do vis-a-vis -vis North Korea? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, the Chinese themselves, uh, their economy is such that they need good relations with the United States, with South Korea, you know, much more than North Korea, uh, Japan, and everyone else in that part of the world. The Chinese economy is fragile in so many ways. If you start irritating the United States, when you have a president like Trump who's already talking about trade restrictions and you alienate the South Koreans who buy a lot from China and the Japanese, that cannot be good for business. And so if you keep allowing uh, the North Koreans to be so provocative and you side with them, that will that's bound to alienate everyone else in the region. There was an okay. interesting uh, speech given uh, by a Chinese historian uh, last week in China, in Beijing, where he was berating the Chinese government for not being more um, tough on North Korea, because all the people who have the economic interests in China see that if China isolates themselves by being so closely associated with North Korea's belligerents, that cannot be good for business. So when Trump encourages so forcefully President Xi to rein in North Korea, um, I, I think that's wise on the president's part, and it would be wise on, by, by President Xi to be uh, mindful of that, of that toxic relationship that North Korea is fostering throughout the world. Are we going to see uh, an exchange of uh, fire of any sort uh, between North Korea uh, and the United States, um, uh, are we going to see them try to launch a missile at one of our ships or, 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 or some hostility? That's question A. Question B, again, related to the main topic. If we did, and if we retaliated, and I imagine we'd retaliate pretty tough, what would China do? Well, that's, again, that's, that's the, um, the great unknown. I know. I know. Uh, the, China, the, the North Koreans could, could launch, they say they're going to test a missile once a week. And we have some Aegis cruisers in the area, and those Aegis cruisers could shoot down 
some of those okay. test missiles. So okay. it might is that, not is be that an act of war? Uh, not under certain circumstances, okay. no. Us shooting down so. one of their missiles right. would that be a purely so. defensive act. I think we'd have okay. to announce that we were going to do that. Okay. It's also a a international convention that if you're going to launch missiles into orbit, even for testing purposes, that certain announcements are required, just so okay. you make sure that people are not starting a war. And so I think I think it would not be an act of war for us to right. shoot them down, especially okay. given these circumstances. And okay. we actually should. What would China do? The other half of the question. Um, I think the Chinese will be will hopefully be very reserved. If they're not reserved, then we're on track for a yeah. potentially a global war. Yeah. And that, you know what we don't want to do is escalate this, and China doesn't want to escalate this to full scale thermonuclear war or the potential for that. In the nuclear age, you want to avoid that at all costs. At the point where the Chinese were willing to back the North Koreans in being that provocative, we ought to be very worried. And thankfully, we have a military that's quite capable, but we don't today have a national missile defense capable of protecting the American homeland, which is why in Hawaii, people are concerned about an attack. But if we've reached that point, that's a clear signal that the United States better rapidly be building working 24 hours a day, seven days a week on a robust national missile defense, because that's the only thing that's going to protect the American homeland. We've had the benefit of your wisdom on this before, and we'll have it again. I I guess, I know, is this a meaningful question? Who would want third world war, war between the U.S. and China less, United States or China? Well, I mean, we, the United States, value human life and human freedom. The kind of world you'd have after... Yeah, you know, a, a massive war could only benefit a communist regime. One would hope that the the Chinese realize that it would not be a useful enterprise to go starting that kind of war. And if they were at that point, um, it will be an awfully bad thing not only for us but for them and for civilization more broadly because that but- would that would mean a complete reset. Sure. In world affairs. But given what you said, you know, that we we don't like the loss of life. We abhor the loss of life, particularly American lives. And the fact that it could benefit a communist regime, why wouldn't they prefer it over us? Right, right. No, I I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's awfully difficult, you know, especially for your listeners. To, I know. To fathom, I know. to fathom the notion that, that people think this way in terms of nuclear war. But... We've not eradicated evil from men's souls, nor have we uh, made it any less easier with these awful weapons. Right. Such but bad things. I, I, I agree, and I, and I don't mean to be, you know, cosmologize this, but it just seems to me, well, one, we need to be careful, therefore, what we do. I don't know what help that is to say that. But second, it would seem to me to be just kind of ridiculous, crazy, uh, insane for a provocation from the North Koreans to which we reacted to lead to the Third World War. I mean, this would be like, you know, uh, uh, the Archduke. Uh, I mean, I, World War One. I. I mean, what? what, what uh, I mean, so, so, you know, we need to keep the finger not that close to the trigger, don't we? I mean, if there's a real risk that the Chinese would go all in uh, and say, hey, that's our ally and our neighbor and our friend, 
Um, I mean, well, well, right, yeah. Am no, I in the I'm realm of the preposterous here? We're not in the realm of the preposterous, are we? No, not at all. I mean, look, history is replete with leaders who make bad strategic decisions, right? And so, yeah. if if and, yeah. and I don't, yeah. and hopefully that's not President Xi, but you can imagine some leader who thought, look, I'm going to show these Americans, I'm going to embarrass President yeah. Trump. Yeah, I'm going to do something that's going to force him to back down. Now, you make that kind of strategic error and Trump doesn't back down and things start escalating and there's no clear method of de-escalation. And all of a sudden we get into a shooting war with the Chinese. I mean, this is how wars start, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. sober, sober people need to take a step back and say, we don't want to do this. But the United States also has to defend our interest, our soldiers that are in South Korea and our allies that are in Japan. Yeah, you and bet. so God forbid, God forbid this would happen. But this is one reason why you need defensive weapons like missile defense. So then in the event someone starts escalating like this, it, it will be you know, a completely worthless enterprise given the given our defensive weapons. But without those, you get you get this kind of provocative problem. All right, my last question, I don't want my audience to abandon me, but let me sound like Barack Obama. Given that there is such a risk then uh, of, uh, of, of World War III and us without missile, adequate missile defense, uh, you know, why not just be go back to the Obama s standard with North Korea and not uh, come across as so aggressive? Um, because it's in the lack of um, certitude a dictator like both Kim okay. Jong-un and President Xi might think they have a free hand to do whatever they want to in the Far East. Yeah. Under Barack Obama, of course, yeah. they took some of those islands and they turned them into military installations. They're in the South China Sea. Um, they're provocative toward their neighbors. They treat people without respect. And when you embolden a tyrant, they may do things that you don't really intend for them to do. And so I think I think the great lesson of recent history is peace through strength, as cliche as that has become. But if we if we show that we're willing to defend our interests, the other side has to think twice about it Good. and they have to run the risk of nuclear war and what that would mean to their people and to their economy. Very helpful. Very thoughtful. Very, very good. Brian Kennedy, president of the American Strategy Group. We thank you very much. Uh, really appreciate it and appreciate what you're doing. Go to amstrategy.org to learn more about it or facebook.com slash amstrategy. Brian, thanks so much. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Well, welcome back to The Bill Bennett Show. Today, I am delighted to continue our conversation, an exclusive conversation with Steve Wynn. He's the chairman and CEO of Wynn Resorts and the finance chair of the Republican National Committee. Now, in our previous segment, Steve explained what real political leadership looks like at the national level. In this segment, Steve and I discuss political leadership at the state and local level. Very important, and Republicans have been very good at it lately. Steve, look at all the Republican governors. You talked about the Republican majorities in Congress, and that's impressive. But we have almost two-thirds of the governors in the country in Republican hands. Isn't that a testament to Republican leadership? You know, it's not that there isn't case studies of the kind of government political leadership 
that solves problems in America. They're all over the place, and they all are Republican governors. And and incidentally, that doesn't mean there hasn't been an unsuccessful governor in uh, sure. the Republican Party. Sure. But there there are case studies. But, you know, we live in an 140-character world. Everybody is hooked on sound bites. No one has, has any detail. You know, have you noticed that the confidence that people hold on political uh, issues and the, 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 the energy and the, the certainty they have is directly inversely proportional to their understanding of the subject. Yeah. The more cer- people that really understand something ponder an issue. People who have half-baked half knowledge of something are dead certain about everything they say. And I know that we can do better in America and I know that we can have an intelligent immigration program in this country. Let's and w- go ahead. You know, I know that we can have a better tax system in this country. And I know that we can do a better job in education in this country. But through it all, there's been one fundamental missing link. And that is the government of the United States has not had its arms around one big fat idea that is at the heart of all progress. And that is that leadership, leadership is getting ordinary people to achieve extraordinary goals. Mm -hmm. And the way we do that is the way we bring up children, the way we run businesses, the way we train a dolphin or a dog. We reinforce with positive reinforcement the behavior that we wish to encourage. We reward the behavior that we wish to encourage. And what we have, and the most powerful weapon I've set up before is our tax policy. It's the right that we give each other to take our money by force if necessary. Nothing is as powerful as the right to take our money that we give our government. And when we do, that power has been misused, has been abused by ignorant, ill-informed leadership that has used it as a stick and a punishment instead of a reward. Let me ask you, Steve, um, because, uh, again, these are very, very worthwhile remarks and insights about uh, government, and you're now talking about leadership. And we have talked many times in the past about your leadership as the head of an organization, your management philosophy. Let's combine management philosophy personnel, uh, and you always talk first and foremost about the people who work for you and how you spend time with them, listen to them, encourage them, reinforce the right behaviors. Let's talk about that in relationship to government. Very specifically, let me tell you a quick story. When I became Secretary of Education, um, I, uh, you know, I walked in and they gave me my hat and my medals and saluted me and said, yes, sir, Mr. Secretary, and Whatever we're all we're all Reagan people here. Was, yeah, this yeah. is great, and you know I had the steering wheel on the ship, and I just yeah. turned it to the right. Yeah, and you know I looked after the first three months, and that ship was still going left. <laughs> you know, yep. and I went down and I checked, and by gosh, the steering wheel, the ropes weren't connected to anything. Okay, <laughs> now this this phrase that's much in fashion, Steve, Wynn, these days, the deep state. You know, you've heard this. This is the you know the entrenched people in the bureaucracy. It's come up to some degree in regard to the intelligence uh, services, the intelligence community, but elsewhere too. 
and I know from talking to several se- several cabinet secretaries because there's still a lot of staffing to be done that people are enormously frustrated with um, the actions of you know entrenched long-term bureaucrats. You are a manager par excellence. What do you do if you're, you're ju- running a three thousand person department? You just described the situation. Now this happens all the time. You describe the reality of the what's called the entrenched bureaucracy. Well, there's an entrenched bureaucracy because these, someone has to stay there month after month, year after year, and run these departments. So it is what it is. Now, instead of beefing about it, recognize it as the truth, like furniture. The wall is there. Stop smashing into it. Change the subject. The entrenched bureaucracy. Those are regular people working for the government who want to keep their jobs and make a better life for their family. They appear to be liberal at one moment. They are afraid of change, and a big Republican secretary of the education, Bill Bennett, frightened them. So they hug, they hug their position. They resist change as a matter of survival. That's the truth. It's like complaining about the teachers' union as something that interferes somehow with education. No one's going to get rid of the union. You're not going to get rid of the entrenched bureaucracy. Get it? That's the way it is. So what does a leader do? He says, that's reality. How do I manage reality to make change and associate it not with fear or that I'm going to lose my job or I hate change, Make change friendly. Make the job fun. And you would have connected all the ropes to that bureaucracy. For example, we can't make change. We can't shrink the size of the government. It grows on its own. Can you pause a second? I just have to cough. (coughs) All good, Sean? Great. Okay, fine. So let's take a department. Guy's a regulator. What's the EEOC, the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Committee, or the NLRB, or the Environmental Protection Agency? Guy gets hired to be in the Equal Opportunity Commission, designed to protect citizens and from their employers to make sure that they're not the victim of discrimination uh, or other mistreatment. And he gets a job, and he gets health care for the government. He gets a pension, he's got a family, and now he's a regulator. So he wants to be a good regulator and impress his boss and show him that he that they hiring was hiring him was a good idea. So he takes a look at the rules that he's supposed to enforce and he is now hunting around for someone to enforce them on so that he can show that he's a good regulator. So he's right away looking to find problems. As, a, as an extension of his self-respect, of his desire to do a good job, and hopefully to get promoted and get more money for his family. So you see that this, this so-called out-of-control regulator, who's probably pressing and going over the line in enforcement of regulations, is doing what he thinks he ought to do for himself and his family. That's human nature. So how do you change that? You say... You reward people for what you want them to do. So what I want people to do is to shrink the government, 
make the government more efficient and accomplish the goals of the department with less money so that we don't continue this huge deficit spending and the uncontrolled growth expansion, the bloating, the inflation of government. So all you got to do, I'd get that department with 3,000 people together and I'd say, whatever your job is, you know the purpose of our department. Great. But here's what I want to tell you. Last year, our budget was X dollars. So I want to tell the group, you all get together among yourselves, department by department, subgroup by subgroup, and if you can get the budget this year to less than X, for every dollar you save, 20 cents of every dollar is going into a pool that we're going to give you as a bonus. We're going to pay you for good ideas if they work and result in a smaller budget. We're going to give you part of that money that you figured out how to save for the American people. You want to see government shrink? Wham! You'll see government shrink. And when someone spends an extra, a, a ridiculous amount of money in court per, uh, prosecuting a stupid EEOC case, his friends will say, don't do that. It costs too much money for us to do that. All right, Steve, we have to leave it there for today. Thank you, as always. Another great show in the books. Tune in next time, folks, for my special interview with GOP rising star, former Navy SEAL, former Peace Corps worker, Governor Eric Greitens of Missouri. You won't want to miss that. This has been The Bill Bennett Show.